from the boardroom to the shop floor. Good business runs on good governance. Join esteemed expert in governance, Dr. Nimrod Dembele, for the next hour as he takes us beyond governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. A very good evening to all and welcome to tonight's installment of Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrod Dembele. Uh, hopefully the show as tonight will continue to push the boundaries as we normally do. I'm delighted to be in your company and thanks for allowing me to grace the airways once again. Uh, and, and welcome to, once again, welcome to Beyond Governance uh, on this glorious uh, but extremely hot Tuesday here in, in South, in, in Gauteng. Uh, without any waste of time, let me take this opportunity to thank Kathy Kayla who has been away for a couple of weeks and she came back exuberant. Quite exciting. I was quite excited to see her, by the way. And Simon, Lindy, we're in Zanati. Thank you very much for keeping everybody uh, glued to their radio station or to their radio. Uh, as well as I'm not flying solo, I've got Tabu, the technical producer of the show, a man that I have absolute respect for. Uh, please wait in on our tonight's conversation. Uh, you're welcome to share your thoughts via our SMS, SMS line, which is 34549. Our telegram is 061. 869-1019 and of course my email address is nimrod at highfm.co.za and the Twitter handle is at highfm. I hope you thoroughly enjoyed our conversation last week. Personally, I, I do take these kinds of conversations to heart for they provide uh, very interesting insights uh, from a number of people. You might recall last week we had a conversation with Unatim Toninzi, who's the independent uh, business analyst, and 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 I thought uh, he was indeed uh, thought provoking, and and I really enjoyed the kinds of inputs that you uh, uh, made to our conversation, and I hope that you'll continue the kind of trajectory uh, tonight. For I think. Uh, our menu is going to be explosive tonight. Uh, on that issue, we, what we want to be dealing with tonight, we're going to put a spotlight on this, on SOEs and business sector in general from a perspective of change. Uh, and, and, and as I, perhaps maybe as, as a prelude to what's the kind of conversation I want us to, to embark on, it's just a quick reflection on uh, what you've picked up recently, that um, uh, Stanoff, for example, uh, you know, is taking legal action against, I mean, Public public Investment Corporation is taking legal action to compel Stanoff to hand over the, the PwC extensive report on what went wrong um, at the retail conglomerate. And, and you would expect Stanoff uh, would say, well, this was a report that was done independently. Uh, let us obviously hand it over. And, and the arguments that have been presented by Stanoff, I find it quite bizarre, if, you know, uh, to say the least, that uh, the report will could compromise the civil, civil or criminal proceedings against implicated persons. But who, I mean, for me, it almost sounds as good as saying, let us not have witnesses coming before or to the commission of inquiry. There's no commission of inquiry because that will compromise the, 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 the investigation. I think it's quite absurd. One of the things that, you know, uh, was obviously a highlight for me uh, this week is the fact that, uh, you know, I think the consumers of data are celebrating. The, the, the Competition Commission have made a ruling that uh, uh, biggest network operators, uh, MTN and Vodacom, ought to reduce their data prices by at least 50%. And that, for me, is quite remarkable 
but I've got my own view about this because uh, at one level, uh, you know, people might be celebrating that data has gone down, but on another issue, you know, the investors might complain that uh, the investment would not uh, yield the same kind of results which um, were, were projected. But anyway, those are my thoughts. Um, ultimately, we're going to have to reflect on what, uh, you know, the, the, the eat hole. Uh, we've heard that we've heard that from the minister that um, uh, in December we will get to hear whether cabinet is making final ruling about the ETOL, and I hope and, and pray that uh, uh, that's what everybody will want to hear. We just might have a, a wonderful Christmas, we might have a depressing Christmas, but let's just wait and see what happens. Uh, before we get into tonight's uh, interest, let me have this opportunity to welcome a man that I've got utmost respect for. Uh, his name is Edwin Robert, who is a founder of touch to learn and I want to reflect with Edwin on critical issues around change, and and why is it as South Africans we know we, we, we are our worst enemy? Why as South Africans we don't learn? Uh, before you get to the juicy part of our, our conversation, let me take say welcome and, and thanks for gracing the airways, Edwin. Thank you very much, Nimrod. It's tremendous to be here and uh, good evening to all your listeners. I'm delighted and grateful for this invitation to share perspective on the enormity of change, which we're going to talk about this evening. Absolutely. Um, one of the issues that, that I've said to you before we went on air is the fact that South Africa is such a blessed country. We've got best universities. We've got best business schools. We've got best uh, consulting firms. We've got all these things that are, you know, all these institutions that are trailblazing, that are known. We even have King Four for crying out loud, which has been heralded one of the best uh, uh, instruments for corporate governance. And yet we are... Are completely opposite. Uh, perhaps maybe let me just take back and say, in that context, uh, we've seen. Let's look at you know we've seen how the South African airway is completely, uh, you know, going down the drain, and we've seen how ESCOM uh, the attempts to resuscitate it. The fundamental question, Edwin, is: We have had so many turnaround strategies. Why are we not yielding results? Given the background that I've, I've, I've pointed out in terms of the wealth of insight and wisdom that we have via our consulting firms, via our business schools, by our, uh, our consult, I mean, the list is endless. On the positive, why are these things failing to translate to action? Nimrod, I, I think that if I had the exact answer, um, we'd be sitting in uh, different chairs. <laughs> But the truth of it could be possibly found in some simplistic um, perspectives, and that is if we have the best of the best, perhaps they're not producing the kind of skills and expertise that are relevant to the requirements of the marketplace that we're facing at the moment. And when we look at this, organizations are confronted with some incredibly volatile times, the capacity in our own country to absorb the magnitude and speed of change might very well be at a very thin edge. I'm not convinced that it's really just about the kind of skills and expertise that we're producing. I think it's really at a very, very basic fundamental level. And when you look at the the change and the imperative for change, one's got to ask, what is the political will? And similarly, what is the compelling need? Because if you're not, if it's not imperative, well then 
why change? It's merely a nice to. And I'm, it is provocative insofar as I'm not convinced that some in certain echelons have felt the heat quite like that that's been expressed by the majority. But but uh, thanks thanks for that insight, um, um, Edwin. There has to be a compelling need. Surely by now, if you look at ESCOM, look at uh, SAA, look at ma- most of these um, state-owned entities, from the board level and from the shareholder level, one would say we've had a compelling need. One would say people must have been pushed to a point where we sign off, you know, the turnaround strategy. The shareholder signs off the, the turnaround strategy. The board signs off the turnaround strategy. Executives go ahead and implement the turnaround strategy. Surely that amounts to a compelling need. If, if, if that's not a compelling need, then what are we talking about? I think we have a trust vacuum. I think there's a fundamental challenge with trust. And if you take it to the boardroom, as you, as you point out, and you look at the interests that CEOs are expected to address, and let's just take an interesting analysis, as you mentioned, of Steinhoff. Take Marcus Yurter, who we can say we've learned some valuable lessons and can formulate maybe a lens through which a more informed investment decisions can be made and behaviors monitored. And so if we have a look at this and to understand this, we need to examine the context in which organizations and the Maverick CEO operate. Because organizations and their staff are increasingly faced with institutional complexity, situations in which conflicting um, social demands on their goals and actions clash. Similarly, investors are expecting above average returns, but also less risk. And despite this being an oxymoron, markets are increasingly volatile, unpredictable, and CEOs are entrusted with the responsibility of navigating these turbulent conditions. So the three to five year strategic plan of execution is being eroded by surviving the next 12 months. And this equates to a foresight deficit that only the most suave and charismatic, larger than life CEOs appear to manage with aplomb. Dare I say they godlike characters and they hold the floor of astute investors in awe and tick all the reputational boxes and these boxes that support the belief that they can do the seemingly impossible I think this question is how ironic it is um, because time has proven that certainly um, the seemingly impossible has been done despite all the regulatory requirements of King 3, now King 4, and balances, etc., and checks being in place. Um, we can even go back, Nimrod, to time of pre-2010. And the kind of magnitude of scandal isn't just confined to what we've seen in our own media. Let's not forget what that organizing body the FIFA organizing committee had been through. Dare we say baptisms of fire? So maybe that shares a little bit of insight into why I say there's a, a trust vacuum. And we need to first meet each other eye to eye and come to a point of realization that we can trust 
when we trust a little bit deeper than what on each day and, and each action and we build that emotional bank account that ultimately allows us the freedom to navigate quite as autonomously as what we have done. That process of healing and reconciliation doesn't happen overnight. And yet, as we were chatting just prior to coming on air, how ironic it is that we live in a world where organizations are comprised of living people, human beings, and yet digitization is at the forefront of our minds and infuses every part of our daily lives. And it moves at a speed and at a clock that never sleeps. I think we've got some really fundamental challenges of coming to grips with the very basics first before we start trying to move the mountains. I'm glad you raised the issue of trust deficit uh, and, and an emotional bank account. That's a very interesting expression, uh, which which is actually not at the level where it's supposed to be. And I, I completely agree with you. Perhaps maybe we have not invested enough as rapport, enough relations uh, at, at, this, at the executive level, at the shareholder level, at stakeholder level, at all levels, because of perceptions perhaps, maybe. Um, how would how we turn around, because all these issues, emotional, I mean, uh, you know, uh, trust deficit that you pointed out too, could be a building block towards a more constructive conversation around the turnaround that we've seen. Perhaps maybe. Perhaps maybe this is what is missing or has been missing. I mean, SAA has gone about at least about six or seven turnaround that I've seen. Um, Telcom has gone up. I mean, not um, ESCOM has gone about what six or seven as well. Uh, turnaround that I've seen and so on and so forth. Perhaps maybe, and just perhaps maybe this is something that is missing. That, that we don't trust each other. How do we then have the conversation? We can't have a conversation because the unions don't trust. Government doesn't trust. Business does not trust. We've seen the kinds of emotional roller coaster brought to bear around the, 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 the bailout or possible bailout of any of the entities. I mean, for an example, ESCOM, I mean, SAA is currently sitting with a, a debt of about 9.2 billion rands and they, they definitely need, uh, financial resources up to 2 billion rands to stay afloat. All this issue of, uh, which are very dilapidating on a bank on the side of not only SOEs, but across the businesses were as a result of bad management, which exacerbate trust. How do we get to a point where the same people that got us to our knees, how do you trust them back? Because we, we keep on recycling, you know, recycling these people. They move you from this as a CEO, you go there and you go there. You, you, how, how on earth are we going to have trust? If this is a very fundamental issue that the same people who brought us closer to our knees uh, are being recycled. Number one, I think the aspect of trust is one that's earned and not bought. And when one looks at communication, there's enough academia and research that's been conducted to show that the power of communication is so much richer when it's done face to face. I think the percentages are somewhere in the upper 80%, 86-87% of communication is non-verbal. And yet, most of the communication that organizations cascade is void 
of that authenticity. And yet, you pick up a phone and it's got two cameras and one is so that you can film yourself. Because it's a lot more authentic when you're in the visual. Now, when we consider that effective communication really is not just the telling, it's the probing to validate that you've understood as well, then why is it that the mechanisms we're using to disseminate change, to disseminate the strategy, to mobilize people around a common purpose and vision, to instill a sense of tolerance towards indifference, something that seems to be very void in society that's in turmoil. Why is it that we're using methods and mechanisms that are linear? And in a country like ours and most developing countries, 86% of the employable workforce are disenfranchised. They, let's say, let's call it what it is. They're discriminated against because they don't have access to the resources that many of us take for granted. The cost of mobile data is in this country being the second or third most expensive in the world is almost the equivalent to catching a taxi fare. Now, how is it that we might produce all the blogs, the wealth of collateral about our mission, our vision, our stakeholder updates, and yet we never cascade that to the lowest common denominator? And I'll just give you a simple example. Driving into an office park, as we did tonight, the first experience that we have of the brand in this country is often with a person who's not on the payroll. It's a security guard at the gate. They represent your brand experience. And yet they're not part of the internal communications. They don't know the latest news. They're not part of the inner circle. But they're entrusted with upholding your brand. Now, when you're an organization with such diverse stakeholders as state-owned enterprises, you could even argue that you and I as consumers are brand advocates. Hmm. You, you really got me thinking there, uh, Edwin. I, I, I will, I will, I'll definitely want to agree with you on the value of effective communication, bringing everyone on board to a point where, you know, we are able to read each other's, uh, you know, gestures and to, to validate what we're saying. Because I could say this, but if you don't see me, you don't know whether I'm, I'm being truthful or not. That's one thing that I, I will still, I will strongly uh, appreciate that and, and, and maybe call for, call on South Africans to further uh, invest in national dialogues on issues such as economic development, security, and, 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 and sort of all issues of national importance. Perhaps maybe uh, there's enough voices in the country to warrant us to talk. Uh, and, and when we talk, let's bring every single stakeholder, let us be heard. And perhaps maybe the trust deficit, that is actually as a result of uh, the misfortune that I've seen, could probably maybe be, be reduced. The other issue that I want to you know, put before you is the culture of impunity, which most people are of the view that uh, those that have been trusted with power, uh, they have done so, or they've literally embezzled, lined up their pockets, irrespective, because they knew there were no consequences. So from the change point of view, from the governance point of view, how do we, uh, parallel to bringing the notion of, of, of trust deficit, how do we bring in uh, this idea of uh, culture of impunity, uh, which, which, is, which, which 
majority of people of the view that it, it does exist. Whether it's a perception or reality, it's neither here nor there. But how do we bring in that culture of impunity or the perception that um, we are on we, because nothing happens? It's a very interesting point, and maybe I can answer it in a slightly different way. We just hold that point around effective communication because it denotes the ability to contextualize the subject matter in a manner that is easily understood and related to. Technology, as I mentioned, is frequently used to communicate, but alas, more often than not, fails to provide that feedback loop to enable a fact-based decision to be made. Now, when you talk about governance, let's not forget that IT as a corporate asset and confirms the need for governance structures to protect and enhance this asset, which you know only too well is enshrined within King. Now, as it comes to impunity, I don't believe that anyone is above the law. And I think that when you're entrusted with the responsibility of of executing in an organization the size of what we've spoken of thus far this evening, you're expected to uphold and conduct yourself in a manner that is consistent with the highest of values. And when there's failure to fulfill against that, the full wrath must be felt. Can you just hold on to that point, um, Edwin? Let's, let's, let's uh, take a break. We'll come back in a second. This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. Uh, welcome back to uh, tonight to to to, um, to build governance. Uh, my name is Nimrod Mbele. I beg your pardon. I just stumbled across something that that completely took me out here. Um, if you've just joined us, I'm joined studio by uh, Edwin uh, Roberts, who is the founder of uh, Touch to Learn. We're having a very interesting conversation about change and change management in the context of uh, the kind of uh, uh, incidents that we've seen in the country, and and before we went to the break, you know, the, the question I want to put uh, that, that I wanted to put before Edwin is is around you know uh, trust and how we build a trust and how do we get to a point really where those that have been seen to be uh, operating with with impunity can be redeemed. Uh, you know, let's 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 uh, hear your thought once again, uh, you know, Edwin, on that on that point. So as I mentioned, I don't believe that anyone at any point in life is above the law. And the question really poses, and there's maybe a distinction between state-owned enterprises and businesses alike, where one can argue, as what was presented by the CEO of SAA upon departure, that the level of political interference was intolerable, and yet we wish to hang them by the lanyard for the actions that they've undertaken, that being the CEO. Whereas in, in, the, in the private sector, and to that extent you could include um, listed companies, the level of autonomy is expected, and, it, and really at the end of the day the level of political interference is largely confined to the lobbying that may emanate from investor groups. But to a large extent, you're never afforded to be above the law. And I think a while back you had um, Brenda Carley on air, who I was privileged to attend, and by your invitation, thank you, uh, the Conscious Leaders and Conscious Summit 
um, conference. And what really came out very strongly was in this world where there's been such a betrayal of trust, an erosion of investor confidence, and you were operating in increasingly volatile economic times, the magnitude of which has become more and more frequent and extreme. Never more has there been a heightened emphasis on the quality and the integrity of the individual entrusted with navigating these stormy seas. And trust is earned. In life, we have an hourglass of time, as I liken it to. We never know when those grains of sand are going to get snuffed. So it is our duty and our obligation to take every encounter that we have, as big or small as they may be, because they're all equal. It's somebody's time. No one person's time is better than another's. And to multiply that with extraordinary vigor and commitment with the interactions that we have in life. And that is expected, I believe, of the leaders of modern leaders of our time is to recognize how important each and every stakeholder is in the survival of the business. One's got to look at the bigger picture. And in the headlines, as you mentioned earlier, there was the Competition Commission sighting of MTN and Vodacom. And everyone cries for joy and leaps and shouts because they expect data prices to fall. But stop for a moment and consider whose retirements are invested in those entities? What is the net impact on a diminished return against your expectations as a result of this action? I'm not for one moment purporting or claiming or insinuating that the tariffs and the fees that we pay are not exorbitantly high. But you must remember at the end of the day, it is a free market economy and they've got to answer to the shareholders' expectations for returns. But here's something that, that I think um, you, you hit it on a nail. Um, but but I, I would imagine most people have a bit of a problem with that because we, we now ought to be talking share values, not shareholder value. Uh, by your own admission, uh, you know, by your own admission, Ed, that, you know, um, we, we now have to appreciate all the stakeholders. It is very important that every stakeholder is given that opportunity or, or an impression that they've been considered. Um, yes, I know that, you know, in a, it's a free market economy. People have invested their money and so on and so forth. Uh, there, isn't that a contradiction in terms then when we're talking shared, you know, shareholder value as at the expense of the shared value? Let me, let me give, uh, you know, Eric Stiller, I mean, have just joined us this opportunity to weigh in on this conversation. Ah, good evening, Nimrod. Good evening, Edwin. Nice to meet you. Likewise. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Great stuff. I was listening to you on the way here and I've caught this conversation. And I think what I'd like to add uh, to it is that uh, there are a, a, a great number of conversations happening between the different stakeholders in our society, actively through various forums all the time, uh, conferences, summits, uh, NEDLAC itself. I had a conversation with a business leader earlier today in which uh, uh, I don't want to disclose too much to breach confidentiality, they had intensive discussions sectorally and about the various key issues in the country today, SOEs and all of that. And the underlying issues, and they illustrate it time and time again, even with MTN and Vodacom, 
are there are some fundamental ideological differences and differences of interest in society generally, in all societies. You, you have the workers' movement. Labor has got a very strong interest, obviously, in preserving jobs and increasing wages. Business has an interest in maintaining profitability and returns. Government has an interest in this country pretty much aligned to a certain extent with labor. And then, of course, it's trying to encourage business and, and investment. So I think that the way forward actually relates to stepping up the role of leadership and professionals like ourselves, people who want to play a role in terms of actually uh, advancing towards solutions in the country. And you've seen it in this country at a number of occasions, certainly through through the transition to democracy and through World Cup 2010. You've had some extraordinary moments when the interests of stakeholders have been brought together. So what I'm suggesting to you for the discussion is that you really need to facilitate those dialogues and conversations with a statesman-like, highly competent way of bringing parties to a mutual understanding. As Edwin was saying, trust is earned, it's not bought, and it and cannot just be expected. That trust needs to be underlined by not only communication which can be conflicting, you need to be able to see the other's point of view. In other words, to a large extent, the conversations we're having in this country are about conflict resolution and about compromise and negotiation. So case in point is today the, the drop-in data. The drop-in data is, you know, so many people will celebrate that throughout the country. And that's where it really, in a, in a way, as all you know, consumers will feel from a consumer point of view, is where we need to be, advancing the economy, becoming a, a, a you know, 4IR and a global player, e-commerce, all of that. On the other hand, many of us have invested funds which are going to take a knock or are employees or shareholders of NTN and Vodacom and Celsi. Those are some of the trade-offs that need to happen. There are definite trade-offs that need to happen. And... I must say, uh, 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 to any extent, when I saw this announcement today, and and I'm, I'm presuming that any pension investment I might have might be invested in MTN and, and Vodacom, I said, wow, okay, I'm going to have to come to the party here. If I really believe sincerely that data prices should fall in the interest of a more competitive economy, and so many of our sectors are dominated by one or two or three large players, they're monopolies or oligopolies, the banks, the, so many different sectors, then we need to understand that there might be a price that we have to pay. And it's a very difficult conversation to have, let alone with yourself, let alone with all the other stakeholders. So I see an opportunity for anyone who wants to make a difference to facilitate that kind of a conversation meaningfully. I'm, I'm glad, um, you. You know, uh, Eric, um, once again for your for your wisdom on this particular matter. But here's a quagmire that most people sit with. Uh, take me through here, Edwin. Yeah. Uh, the, the kinds of conversations that ought to happen don't filter down to every uh, person on the street, so to speak. I'm of the view 
I could be wrong. I'm of the view that the bulk of the conversation happens at the 10% of the, of the, you know, pyramid. I'm not of view that we don't have majority, you know, we need to find a way of filtering down or cascading down this kind of conversation. Because if we had this kind of conversation, the country would not be burning. Before you answer, if you don't mind, Edwin, I I, I, I actually must disagree with you on that. I think Kasatu and the union movement are highly active on the shop floor. They have shop stewards who are promoting their point of view all the time. The political parties, to any extent that they are more or less organized, it's not 57 million people, it might be 5 million people that are interested and participate. I'm not quite sure whether that is where the major conflicts will be resolved. It might be another sort of issue to 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 get more people involved. But the underlying conflicts are, you know, do you keep SAA alive or don't you? I mean, those kind. Anyway, Edwin, I'd like your view Sure, Eric. Thank you. And I think there isn't, I think if any one of us had the perfect answer, um, as we said at the start, uh, the conversations would have been done before they started. But what both have highlighted is that we're living in one of the most, in greatest countries of inequality. And... Whilst you may very well be right that it is the upper echelons of the corporate pyramid, the hierarchy, that are perhaps more informed than abreast, one's got to bear, weigh that with the realities of where people are at the minimum level. Mm-hmm. And in fact, whilst, Eric, to your point, yes, the shop stewards may very well be enormously active, and I can reflect upon it at a time when I was with a very big um, global uh, packaging conglomerate, um, and doing my intern where literally getting onto the floor in the early hours of the morning and going and walking and being part of the team and uh, breaking bread, as one mm, would like to sure. talk, literally and figuratively, yes. was so critically important because it did a very simple thing. It showed respect yes. for very different stakeholder groups' interests. Mm, sure. And the aspect of respect is something that I feel that is a deficit in our country, and I can't argue for or pro or others comparatively to rest, but respect, like trust, is not bought. It doesn't come from the hierarchy where you sit. It often comes about through the wisdom that you accrue over many years of experiencing life. Mm. I respect you because you've endured more. I know in Estrosa, when I studied it, one of the key reasons why you refer to your your elder as Data, as your father, whilst he's not your biological father, it's a term of respect Hmm. because an elder has accrued wisdom that you haven't yet. Now, when you come to managing the speed of change that our economy is needing, I would say that you've got to look at where we are and state-owned enterprises have been nurtured by state and the realization is it is not their space to operate that. But you're not going to attract the foreign direct investment required to bail them out when they're sitting with a labor force that is completely foreign to the way that an international has ever run it. And you're dealing with a labor policy that is not akin to the way that foreign investors are familiar with. Mm. 
And I would argue also, having recently had this discussion at the ITSA this, this morning, was people say that we are not producing children or the youth ready for the 4IR. Well, maybe they are ready, and it's us that are holding them back. I agree with that. And, and perhaps when you look at the kind of change, it is being confined by the 10% at the top because they've got such deep-rooted vested interests. Exactly. And the last point is in this instant gratification world, the now generation, as I call it, which is always on. It's instantaneous. I don't have to wait for the results of my game. I get it now if I'm playing Minecraft and all the rest of these. Forgive me for my ignorance. I don't play them, obviously. But <laughs> the reality of it all is is that level of expectation for instant gratification is not congruent with the speed of change. And yet we're boxed into a labor policy which says, well, you can only be permanently employed and gone are the opportunities for micro-jobbing. So I, I learn a skill with a large restaurant organization. Am I prohibited from going to their competitor? Have I had to sign a non-disclosure? Have I had to sign a restraint of trade? Well, what if I want to progress myself faster by being able to go and work in micro jobs as freely as they are afforded to me in accordance with the supply and demand principles? So I think that we've got to get look at this from a couple angles. Yes, the one is the investor. The one is from the stakeholder at the grassroots level who who really in this incredibly unequal society is only grateful for the most menial of tasks and be afforded an opportunity. And then you've got captains of industry and other significant others who are deciding upon the future of millions over matters, and Eric, to your point, that quite frankly, maybe it could even be considered egotistical. Are they really in the best interests of the lowest common denominator or are they the interests of self-fulfilled ambitions, um, aspirations, or possibly economic stakeholders? Sure. The, the question I'm asking is, is how do we facilitate those more meaningful, respectful, trusting conversations? You know, what role, how do you make a difference in that space? <clears throat> Yeah, that's that's a question I'm throwing open. You know, Edwin, I don't know the, your field of activity. I just saw your profile before I came here. There's some very <laughs> but, but, interesting stuff about yeah. touch screens and what have you, which is fascinating. But here's the thing that we all have. I think we need to go back to um, as, as as the country, and and we've had this kind of conversation over and over yeah. on the show that uh, we we now need to really bring different players around the table because the reality is that we're operating at different wavelengths. Our reference points are completely different. Mm. Shareholders have a different uh, interest. Yeah. Labor has a different interest. Yes. Unemployed youth have a different interest. Yeah. And, and society norms and standards are imposing other variables that right. makes people intolerant yes. uh, towards each other. And sure. those kinds of values are evaporating. Ultimately, we still have to, to run a business. We still have to run economy, but how do we run economy when we are not able to see eye to eye or have a clearer picture of what is at stake, what are the trade-offs, where could we meet each other halfway? Because until we have those kinds of 
uh, conversations about this is where we are. We're not going to run this economy down, but where do we meet each other halfway? Let, let, let me give you an example. Uh, I was fortunate to, to put in a proposal to be on the panel on the job, job summit through NEDLAC. And as you know, NEDLAC is a forum that is supposed to facilitate uh, negotiation and discussion and collaboration between all the major stakeholders of society. It has not been very productive in the last few years, as you well know. Um, and uh, in, there was a period in the transition to democracy and post-democracy in the so-called golden era when go- growth and development summits, there was a lot of collaboration. People were taking a pragmatic view of solutions to the country's problems rather than an ideological point of view, looking for win-win, looking for give and take. So right now, you know, there was the conversations in each sector at NEDLAC, uh, which I might, and you could also be invited to participate in, where the interests are diametrically opposite. Business doesn't want to employ more people because that reduces profitability and the potential survival. How do you take an SAA or an ESCOM, okay, that in order to make it viable, you've got to run it as a business and you're going to have to shed some jobs. You might not even agree from a business perspective that SAA should survive at all because it might not even be a strategic uh, uh, sector today in terms of the interest of a government. However... Government has a vested interest in labor who are among its voters and it has a strategic alliance with Kasatu and the labor movement. And it is the shareholder of SAA. And it would like also to see more jobs created in SAA. So you've got some diametrically opposite perspectives among stakeholders talking as we speak. It takes an incredible amount of negotiation and facilitation skill to get parties to come together and to understand each other's perspective and to have given it's going to be give and take even in the trade wars happening between China and America at the moment Trump is not going to get it all his own way and neither is China and everyone in the world is hanging on tenterhooks now until there is some kind of a give and take that's the only way you can resolve diametrically opposite opinions. Let's hear, well, let's hear your thoughts. So please wait you know, on, on, on our conversation. Uh, our, our telegram is 061-895-1019. Of course, our SMS line is 345419. I'm joined in the studio by uh, Edwin Roberts as well as Eric Stillerman. What are your thoughts? Um, we are having a very interesting conversation about how do we bring all the stakeholders together? How do we uh, infuse the element of win-win? The trade-offs, as as it puts it, uh, despite the fact that we come from different angles, business is there to make money, but you have to make money in a sustainable way. We have, we can't initiate in jobs like they're going out of fashion. Uh, we we we're not growing the economy. If you don't grow the economy, political stability becomes eminent. If we have political stability, the very same business that does not want to invest because they're in there for money. There's not there's nothing left for them. So so these are kind of hard conversations. Sure. Uh, on the labor side, you can't push for uh, eight to ten percent when you're growing at less than one uh, percent. How do we cultivate that consciousness? 
among the, the labor labor movement. But in the same way, how do we get to a point that I think um, uh, Erwin eloquently puts it that 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 business in some instances does not account or recognize that the, the lowest denominator. So, so these are very complex issues that that we need to find each other. What's your latest point, uh, Edwin? You know, Eric Nimrod, I I just want to reflect. Whilst whilst the the topic may sound somewhat gloomy, I I want to reflect upon the incredible and exciting optimism mm. that that I know we share here today, and many others do. You know, historically as a country. We have overcome seemingly insurmountable odds. If you look at our young democracy and you rec- compare that to the United States and you look at what we've managed to do, gosh, it is absolutely incredible. How awesome it was recently to watch our Springboks, led by Sia, lift that trophy. But the best bit was his testimony of how he's got there, how he overcome seemingly insurmountable odds to be able to achieve that. And I think therein lies half of the truth, is we don't know what we don't know. And it's through conversations that are free and liberally entitled like this that we need to have many more of. Without fear of reprisal And I think we can be very grateful That we have the kind of freedom of press that we do That enable us to propose such provocative comment But it's one thing to have the conversation But the hand of time is constant And when you weigh up the pleasure Of the feel-good factor Of knowing a little bit more about The business of tomorrow than we knew today The reality is that you've got to put a peg in the ground and have conviction in your own ability and run for it because time waits for no person. So, yes, I think there are the multiplicity of this. There are many um, viewpoints. But when we're talking about right-sizing the economy, the business of investment in this country, getting up our productivity rates, I think we cannot afford to be deliberating over the conversation so much as what we need to have, but consider what our role is as individuals and take responsibility for what we can do because we can't control everything. But we might be able to do five things. Yep. And one of those is our attitude, our zest for life, our desire to make a profound and sustainable difference to other people, not just that of ourselves. And that's innate within every one of us. I don't believe that when you're born, you're predestined to have to go through the sausage-making machine that we spoke of earlier. I think that there's a huge disconnect between the institutions that we have of industrial era and have been allowed to perpetuate relatively unchanged to what they are today and the needs of business and society and those of fast-moving economies. I think that it's good to have the conversation. In fact, we need to have many, many more, as you pointed out, Eric. But I also think we've got to be very real about it and say that whilst we're having the conversation, understand that change is happening. And that change might be very uncomfortable. SAA may not need to retrench jobs 
if you had a much bigger part of the global skies, sure. we may not have enough pilots, ground staff, and cabin crew. Mm-hmm. So is it possible to look at the redeployment of those skills into other areas of state that may require people who are willing to roll up their sleeves? What are the skills that those those staff have learned over the years? Is it good customer service? Could it be deployed within tourism, for example? What about the technicians and many in the broader stakeholder base of ESCOM? Could they be redeployed into cultivating a competence and an ability within informal sector to look at reticulation of RDP homes and every other with low voltage, low current electricity that can be generated from solar? Are we are we looking at it through maybe a lens that is very fixated on the here and now and not considering the opportunities of tomorrow. Unfortunately, we're not to live with the, um, Edwin, thank you very much for your time. Eric, your parting short? Yeah, I, I think the, the, my parting short is the role of, of professionals, facilitators, leadership, consultants, is to facilitate this process, to bring about the change, agents of change. There's a huge opportunity. You can do that wherever you have the opportunity to get involved. I spoke to an estate agent today who didn't do a deal. And I said, you can go back and bring the parties together. It's all about bringing them to a point that it's going to be win-win. That's our, that's our role. That's my point. Edwin Roberts, thank you very much for your time. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We wish to have you once again. I certainly believe the, the listener has, has thoroughly enjoyed your thought-provoking, very articulate um, views about how we can actually change. Uh, I like your parting short in that we, we need to have a open mind because we, we, we come, half of the time we come in conversations with vested interest mm. and that naturally blocks us to view or to see the other side, you know, and it's just a mind shift. If for a moment, just say, let me just listen and listen to the other side. And perhaps maybe my my problem can be his solution mm. and vice versa. Yeah. That's all that we need. <laughs> this country has, has, has you know, uh, gone past a number of historical incidences. And look at we are. We have demonstrated as a country that we have got so much resilience. We need to ride on on those on that resilience. Uh, your parting shot, as you were saying, like a springbok. That's an opportunity. That's a wave, you know. Sure. But what does it take us to win? It takes compromise. It's a win-win thing that you're talking about. But win-win in context. Yes. Let sure. us be mindful that change waits for no one. Until we meet again, it has been an absolute pleasure. My right. name is Nimrod Nimbele. Have a good one.